This morning we are going to be looking at something that I, I believe to be absolutely crucial. In fact, if I could condense down my entire life, it would be contained in these verses that we're going to look at this morning. Why I, why we went to Papua New Guinea as missionaries, why I stand before you this morning. It, it's all contained in these verses. As, as Paul is going to give us the basics of preaching. And I, I want to start off our time together by taking you to somewhere that um, isn't like us. I don't know how many of these you have at home. You're probably like, are you kidding? I, I don't have a Bible that big, Pastor Jason. But I just mean a Bible. How many do you have at home? Do you have one perhaps that you don't even use? And of the one that you do use, you use it every day. And of that particular Bible, when you open it, do you rejoice in God's goodness to you and giving you His revelation of Scripture? All that you need to know about Him, about yourself, and everything to be godly. Do you recognize that there are people out there who do not have this? In fact, they don't even have a written language. That, that's who we worked with for nearly 20 years. That, that in the far remote reaches of the world, there aren't just one, there are hundreds if not thousands of people groups that don't have this. They are as our people were before the missionaries moved there, an oral society. That means that all that they have is what stories they passed on from generation to generation to generation. And so when we arrived, you know what we told them? Said, hey, we have talk for you that's different that we are going to give you. And this talk is not like any other talk you've heard before. This talk is from God and it's written down in his word to us. And that's one thing to say, but it's an entirely different thing to watch God reinforce this with a, with a people group that, for all intensive purposes, have been just basically out of touch with the entire world for almost their entire being, except for a small little hamlet of people that know them. All they have is themselves and, and these stories that have been passed on. And, and as these stories were passed on, you know what happened? They changed. And what we presented to them is a word that has never changed. And as we said that, as we began teaching, and as we started in the book of Genesis and we laid down this foundation of who God is, what God is like, the plan of the Redeemer, the sinful humanity, and the fall of man, do you know what these people came back to me and said? They said, hey, your, your neck is a little bit different than the way that Ron spoke our language. Meaning that, that, you know, my mannerisms and just my speech wasn't completely the same as Ron's. We, we were two white men, as they would say, who had learned their language that, that were preaching. And Ron had come in 20 years before us. They said, man, your necks might be a little bit different, but the base of your talk is exactly the same. Some of us heard this 20 years ago. This hasn't changed. 
And you know what we were able to say then? It's because this is God's word. This isn't my word. That wasn't Ron's word that he gave you. That's not our mission's word. It's not the word from America. It's not the word from Australia. It is the word of God. It has been passed down over and over again until it came to us and I read the word of God and now God has given me this word to bring to you so that you might take it and give to your family and all the other neighboring tribes around you. That was the foundation that was laid with God's word as the central foundation of all that we were going to do, all that we did do. A church was established. Do you know why we did baptisms? Because they saw baptisms in the book of Acts. Do you know why they started doing offering, giving? Because they saw it in the book of Acts. The word of God is living and active. The word of God is the foundation of all that we believe and all of who we are. And as a church, this should be preeminent above anything else. This should be the solid rock that we stand on. And anybody who gets up in this pulpit needs to be held to some sort of standard and accountability of, man, are, are you going to give us the word? But don't just take this from me. Look at second, or 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at what Paul says here. Even before we get to 2 Timothy, which is so amazing, is, is really Paul is in 2 Timothy, it's like his retirement speech. It's like his dying breath. He's just about to die, and he's, and he's condensing all of his thoughts and all that he could pass off to Timothy now in chapter 4, the last chapter. Man, this is what I don't want you to forget, and it's very similar to what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Look at this. Speaking of when he came to the Corinthians... In their terribly immoral city. And all the things that he could have come in. And he could have boasted in. And that he could have laid down as sort of his accolades. Look at what he says. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. You step away from God's word, you take all the power out of, honestly, Christ's church. You take all the power out of our ability to become more like Jesus Christ. You see, the the Spirit of God that indwells believers uses the Word of God, feeds on the Word of God, so to speak. And Paul recognized more than anything else that he could give anybody what he wanted to give them that was going to produce the change that God wants to see happen in this world, in our lives, at our heart levels, comes through the Word of God. And only through the Word of God. All that to get us to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 5. And what I would say, final truths from a dying man. And the first truths that Paul deals with as he's wrapping up his, his last letter, his last letter ever. As far as the inspired word of God goes, because Paul's going to die after this. So this is what he's passing off to Timothy and what he does not want him to miss 
is the significance of preaching the word. Preach the word. That, that is the central focus of these five verses. What we see in verse 1 is the lead-in and what follows is the lead-out. But everything is pointing back to this. Just as everything in redemption points forward from the Old Testament to Jesus Christ, and now from our time on will point back to Jesus Christ and what he accomplished upon the cross. Second Timothy chapter 4. The basics of preaching. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing, his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn, and will turn aside to, to miss. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Let's pray for the preaching of God's word. Heavenly Father, if you are not here and if your spirit is not present, working and active and alive, then this is a waste of our time. We, we, none of us came here to hear me. We, we came to hear, hear from you. So speak to us now through your word. Lord, we confess that we don't always treasure and look at your word as priceless and look at your word as significant as it is, that it is the only written word that will endure forever. That it is what needs to be proclaimed in order for people to be saved. That it is worth dying for. And that we need it more and more. So teach us this morning, Lord, not just our minds, ignite our hearts. Give us a devotion to follow you, to love your word, and to be all consumed with your word and proclaiming it wherever we go, pouring into it whenever we have an opportunity and allowing your spirit to use it in our lives. So set me aside. And do what you will through your word this morning and may it go forth in accordance with your will. May it be clear, Lord, only by your grace and your grace alone. In Jesus' name, amen. So as Paul jumps off from where Pastor Shane took us last week and, and that is the fact that Scripture, and notice all Scripture, every jot and tittle of Scripture is inspired by God. It's God-breathed. It has His life embedded into it. That's what makes God's Word so different than any other book ever written, that ever will be written, because God is the author. And as such, it is able to do that which is profitable, that which is useful, that no other book could do. And so as he rounds off that, he then goes into giving us this, the basics of preaching. And clearly he is going to say emphatically, Timothy, if you 
Forget anything else. Don't forget this. This needs to be your motto. This needs to be your life's ambition. This is what I want you to do tomorrow, the next day, until you find yourself just like me in prison for the gospel, ready to die. You preach the word. But what's significant to me, and this just might, might be my, my, my little pastoral mind thinking through, is what he doesn't mention. You know what Paul doesn't mention is the size of the church in Ephesus. How large it was, how small it was. He doesn't mention how many sermons Timothy is doing. Is he doing one a week, five a week, ten a week? What's he, he doesn't mention the, the, the scope of Timothy's ministry. Did he have a prison ministry? Did he have a, books, a book ministry? You know, is he a prolific author? And all of these things. No, he doesn't get into any of that. Why? Because he doesn't want to get us distracted. You guys can all be thankful that you're not looking as I am because I can see all these little boomerangs moving with, <laughs> with the air conditioning. That actually makes me rejoice because I know that the air conditioning is on and at times I wonder if it is. See, he doesn't want him to get distracted like I just did. He wants him to stay on task, on target. And this is a dying man speaking to a man who has the rest of his life to live. And he's saying, follow me, Timothy, and I want you to follow me right to this point, to be willing to die for the Scriptures, to be willing to die for the Gospel. Why? Because they are worth it. And so we don't see the, the, the force or the power of his preaching represented to us as to what they thought about Timothy. Was he, was he considered the best preacher of his day? Not mentioned. Not even his gifts are mentioned except for fan that gift into flame. Why? Because we are so quick to jump to the particulars. And we're so quick to want to compare ourselves with someone else. And what is Paul saying? Don't, I don't want you to com be compared with me. I want you to be looking to him. And I want you to serve him in all that you do. And, and what is of utmost significance is what Paul has said over and over again. It is what? The character of the preacher. It is what we've seen again and again and again. The godliness of the false teachers. Or the false godliness versus the godliness of Timothy. And his right character. And his righteous living. And that's to be understood here. All these other things God will take and use as he so chooses. Based upon what? Our faithfulness and obedience to him. That is what he is getting at. That is why he doesn't get into all these other details. Why? Because he is screaming as much as he can through these words. Preach the word, but remember, you are preaching to an audience of one. That is who you are ultimately preaching to, Timothy. So be mindful of the Lord Jesus Christ in all that you do, that when your life ends as my life is now ending and just about to end, that you might be found faithful and obedient to the task that the Lord Jesus Christ has given you. So preach the word. And I know that this kind of passage would lend itself to thinking, well, this is just for pastors. This is only for Pastor Jason. So great, you're just preaching to yourself, Pastor. Or, or this would be great if you were in a room full of pastors. 
But what we're going to see in these five verses is a little bit of a nuance change for the Apostle Paul. Instead of dealing as he has dealt with again and again the false teachers and their lives and their lack of godliness and their progressing the wrong way, what he deals with are those who are what? The listeners. Those who what? Who want to have their ears tickled. Those who want to accumulate for themselves more and more teachers that what? That, that allow them to live out whatever they desire. So in essence, what he's doing is he's taking the focus not off of the pastor, not on the pastor completely, but turning it and also putting it out on all of you. And I believe the reason why the Lord gives this to us isn't just for pastors that they would know what their task is which is clearly here, but so that you all would know what our task is. That the body of Christ would be able to to listen to a man stand at a pulpit here like this and open God's word and that you would be able to hold that man accountable as you should with me. Is he rightly handling the word of God? Is he doing what we see Timothy being challenged, commanded to do here? So I don't want you to think that you get off the hook. Actually, you're just as much on the hook as I am. And why is this significant? Because as the pastor goes, so goes the the body. You know why immorality is just spreading within the body of Christ in so many churches? Because the leaders of the church are acting the same way. No, they're acting that way first and everybody's following suit and they're saying, what's holiness? Preach the word, Timothy. Preach the word, Jason. Preach the word, Pastor Shane. Preach the word, Pastor Eric. And all that we do. Why? Because the maturity and the vitality of the church is directly proportional to the spiritual life and the faithfulness of its pastors and pastoral staff. To some extent. So what we're going to see are the who, the what, the why, and the how of the basics of preaching. First, who? Who the preacher preaches for. We could call this the great task of preaching. The what. What a preacher is to do with the word. What the preacher preaches. We could call that the call to preach. The why. Why a preacher preaches. We could call this the reason to preach. And finally, the how. How a preacher is to preach the word. We could call this the life of the preacher. Notice where he starts, and you might just skip this and jump to right, right to verse 2 because that is what takes all of the emphasis. But if you jumped over this, you would be missing all the backdrop of what Paul is trying to present. And it is oh so significant. I know because I wanted to just jump right to verse 2 as well. And the more that I poured over this, the more that I saw the significance, even what, what we sang earlier, that Jesus will be The king, he will be the judge. That is exactly where Paul goes. Look at what he says as he again deals with this aspect of, okay, what does the preacher need to think? What is the first basic of preaching? It is remember who you are preaching for. I solemnly charge you. That is a command. I solemnly command you. 
We learned earlier this is a word from, mil- from the military. This is the idea of a commander issuing commands to his soldiers. They don't get a choice as to whether they listen and obey. They are required to obey. That is what is happening here. Paul is saying, hey, I'm commanding you. But notice who he's commanding him. Not, not with anybody that's living in, in this world, so to speak. He doesn't say, I command you in the, in the presence of all the elders at Ephesus. Or, or remember, Timothy, I command you with, with the group of us that laid our hands upon you when we commissioned you into, ser- into service, when you became a missionary with me so many years ago. No, he says, I command you on the basis of two witnesses, and these are the most important witnesses any of us could consider. When it comes to us living our daily lives. And the only reason why I believe he doesn't give us the third one is because the Holy Spirit indwells us and he's always there. Not that the other two aren't, but look at what he says. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. So first, who does he mention? He mentions God the Father. He's letting Timothy know it's as if he is pulling back a curtain, a curtain into heaven that now as Paul gets close to the end of his life, he sees clearer than he's ever seen before that God the Father and Jesus Christ have been front and center watching everything that Paul has been doing, giving him the power to live a godly life, empowering him to be bold on behalf of the gospel. And the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's as if he pulls back the curtain and he says, look, Timothy, this is who's watching you. I know there's lots of eyes peering back at you when you're in Ephesus. And there's going to be lots of eyes watching you wherever you go from here. But the most important people you need to remember, and they're not people at all, it's God. The triune God. God the Father, first he mentions as a witness. Now there is this aspect that in order for, for a command or something to be validated, you needed two witnesses, a judgment. But I think what is of utmost significance is the reality that, that Timothy was known to be a timid man. And so what is Paul doing? He's calling upon Timothy to recognize that God is a witness to all that Timothy is doing every day whether he's preaching or not preaching and could it be that God had given Timothy many more opportunities to stand and be a witness for him that Timothy just backed away from could it be that the Lord is speaking to to you this morning saying the same thing hey remember last week when you went to Subway and you ordered all that and you had this beautiful opportunity to step in and share Jesus with that person Remember, God is witness, but he doesn't stop there. He then goes on to say, Christ Jesus, and notice how he describes who Jesus is, and more importantly, what Jesus will do, how he will be functioning, who is to judge the living and the dead, not just the dead. That is significant because then it gives us some delineation as to his particular task of judging. Notice first who isn't going to be judging. The Holy Spirit. God the Father. Now I recognize they are triune, 
But in their roles and their responsibilities and their particular works, they each have a designated work that they do. The Holy Spirit didn't die upon the cross. Only Jesus Christ did that, right? And so now, in order for us to fully understand what is going to happen in eternity future, and even after the tribulation, and to understand what these judgments are and who's going to be doing them, we see that Jesus Christ alone is going to be judged. Do you recognize that? That all will stand before Jesus Christ as judge. Everyone. Past, present, future. Anyone who is born into this world will have to give an account to Jesus Christ and to no other. Why? Because of his work of redemption. Because of what he did and how now the Father has given him that right, that responsibility. Listen to what it says in John 5.22, what Jesus has to say. John 5.22, for not even the Father judges anyone. Because he can't know, because he shouldn't know. But he, speaking of the Father, has given all judgment to the Son. So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. And when we see this delineation of Jesus judging the living and the dead, I I want us all to understand when we talk about judgment, we're talking about judgments. There's plural there's not just one judgment. We tend to always think, oh, you're, you're talking about when people are then sent to hell. That is known as the great white throne judgment. Yes, there is indeed that judgment, and it is real. It is literal. It really will happen at the end, and that will usher us into the eternal kingdom. For those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and have trusted him as our Savior. For those who have not, it will usher them into an eternal life of torment and torture in hell. That incidentally was not created for us. It was created for Satan and his demons. But that's not the first judgment, that's the last The first judgment really is considered the Bema Seat of Christ. We've talked about it. Paul has mentioned it several times in in 1 Timothy, or at least alluded to it. This is the believer's judgment. Not for sin, not for condemnation. Christ dealt with that on the cross. We no longer will know what condemnation is, amen? But what we will know is we will know loss of reward or gain of reward. Either we will receive crowns of gold, silver, precious jewels, or our works will go up like smoke, like wood, hay, and stubble. And that day is the Bema Seat of Christ. Believers within Christ's church will be raised up at the rapture. Notice, there's two different things going on. There is the second coming of Christ. It comes in two stages. The first, Jesus never touches the ground. That is significant. Why? Because when he touches the ground, he is coming to be king. And he will establish his kingdom, his millennial kingdom. It is a literal, real ruling with a real throne and real king and real subjects. That would be us. Before that, Jesus will meet those, if we're alive, he will meet us in the air. Not come and land yet. Makes him sound like he's a plane. 
Meet them in the air, and then what will happen? Those that are saved, and even within the church that have died, that are not part of the Old Testament, so to speak, saints, they will also come together with those of us who are alive. And at that point, we will be judged, we'll be given these resurrected bodies, but we will not return to the earth, we'll be with Jesus while all of the wrath is poured out upon this earth in what is known as the tribulation period. You following me? The end of that tribulation period, that is when Jesus comes in all of his glory for the second coming. And at that point, he will touch down. And why do I keep saying that? He... <laughs> We will come with him. He will physically come. And at that point, he will do some judging. The Old Testament saints will also be part with us during that time. They will rule and reign in the millennial kingdom with us. You and me, with Moses, with Abraham, with David. Amen. It'll be sweet. And then what happens as well is the tribulation saints. Why? Because some will be saved during the tribulation. That, 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 that's an amen too. That even during the most craziest, wrathful time ever to be experienced in the history of mankind, God and His grace is so far-reaching that He will save many. And so the tribulation saints will join us in the millennial rule of Christ in that thousand years and then there's also something known as the judgment of nations. As Jesus comes, what happens at the end of the millennial rule of Jesus Christ? Satan is able to deceive a whole bunch of people. And they follow Satan. And they rise up with Satan and his demons against Jesus. And guess who wipes who out? Jesus wipes them out. But during that time, it'll also be understood as to who will be saved and who will not be saved as far as the nations go and then we'll have the judgment of satan and his demons why because they will be the ones who will first be thrown into hell but we also recognize that there's going to be two waiting for them the antichrist and the false prophet because at the end of the tribulation they are thrown into there already all of that then leads up to the final great white throne judgment, which is then the, the judgment of all the unsaved. Old Testament, church age, tribulation, millennium, all together. And I say all of this to give us the magnitude that the Lord Jesus Christ is the sole judge of all of this. Is that not significant? Isn't God so good to us that this is our Savior and yet we are on the side of God's grace to us for those of us who are trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and I would be so remiss if I did not let anyone know this morning if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ you will be on the wrong side of this judgment. You're not going to get in or get by just because someone else you know knows the Lord Jesus Christ and has trusted Him as, as, your, as their Savior. You're not going to get by just because you come to church every now and again, even if you came to church every day of your life. Even if you so thought that your good outweighs your bad, that's still not going to do anything for you except for have Jesus sentence you to eternity in hell and punishment. Why? Because God's requirement 
is perfect righteousness. Any of us sins one time, we're done. Because that is how holy God is. And yet that is what is so remarkable about what, about what Jesus accomplished on this cross behind me. Because he lived a perfect life. And he did what no other person could do. Why? Because he was born of a virgin, so he didn't have the sin nature that all of us inherited from Adam. And he lived that perfect life, and then he sacrificed himself upon that cross, and he shed his blood, giving up his life so that he could be the perfect substitute. The question is, what have you done with Jesus? Have you believed in him? Have you trusted in him and him alone? For he is the only way to the Father. And so if you want to escape the great white throne judgment, that is the only way. He is the only way. All of that to say that Paul wanted Timothy to recognize the significance of who Jesus is and who Timothy was really preaching for. But really, all preachers, as, as we stand before our congregations, we are preaching seriously to an audience of one. And I can impress you, and I can do this, and I can come up with good stories or this or that, but when it all lays down, when it all matters in the very end is whether or not my heart and everything that I have done has been true to the kingdom and to my king. And can I be so bold as to say, I don't care what the rest of you think. At least I shouldn't. That he should be my number one in all that I consider and all that I think. But please don't take that the wrong way. I want to bleed Jesus when somebody cuts me. I want to bleed the Bible when someone cuts me. I believe that's what Paul's getting at. And notice what he says. He says these two amazing things about Jesus. Pastor Shane already led us into it. Why? What's going to happen? Because Christ will appear again and he will establish his kingdom. You can take that to the bank. There's so many things you cannot know for sure. This you can. Jesus is coming and when he comes, he's going to appear. It's going to be bright, Shekinah glory. Nobody's going to miss it. Both on the side of believers, if you are a believer and he's coming for the rapture, you're not going to be left behind. It doesn't revolve around you it revolves around him and there's nothing that he hasn't been able to accomplish that he said he was going to do so you will be united with him but then in the end when he comes to establish his kingdom everyone will know who Jesus is and everyone will bow before him and confess to him as Lord his kingdom will be established the question is, do you live in this kind of light of reality? That the curtain, so to speak, is, is open for you every day as you live. And as you're driving to work each day. You know, the what would Jesus do? Bumper sticker, fing, uh, rings, necklace. Remember how that was so big? For th There's a part, part where I, I get that. That's good. Just can't take it too far. The reality is that what we do, we do with... The Lord is our witness. And that is supposed to, on the one hand, encourage us, and on the other hand, spur us on to say no to godliness. And just as we know from 
Titus 2.11 to 14, For the grace of God has appeared to all men, bringing salvation, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for what? The blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Zealous for good works, Jesus is coming. The question is, are you ready? Am I ready? So that's the who. The what. What is a preacher called to do? What is a preacher called to preach? We see it in verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove. Rebuke. Exhort with great patience and instruction. Notice what he doesn't say. Preach politics. Preach yourself. Preach stories that make people feel good. Preach the word. That's it. Preach the word. This is challenging for our present time. Because so often people don't want just the word. Oh, come on, that's boring. You, you, need to, you need to flavor it up a little bit. You can't just give him the word. Well, that's what Paul says. That's where the power comes from. Preach it. What does that mean? It literally means to herald. It means to proclaim out loud. It, it was the idea of an imperial messenger being sent by Rome on behalf of the emperor to let everyone know in that particular town or city, hey, the emperor is coming, get ready. Clean up your house, your town, your streets, everything, so that you can be ready when he comes. That is exactly what Paul is charging, commanding Timothy, preach the word, prepare everybody. Wherever you go, you do this, Timothy. I know at times you're going to feel like you can't, but you must do this. But that doesn't mean that people are always going to respond favorably, Timothy. You recognize this. You were with me. We've been chased out of cities. You've seen me stoned. You recognize this. We know this from Scripture. 2 Peter 2.5, you know what it says about Noah? It says he was a preacher of righteousness for a hundred years. What's implied? Nobody listened to him. But did he stop? How long would you have lasted? Right? How long would I have lasted? Preaching for a hundred years to people who were not listening. No, I really mean it. Judgment is coming. That's why I'm building this thing. I know you, you don't even know what, what rain is, but trust me, God said it's going to happen, so it's going to happen. And yet on the flip side, we have someone like Jonah. He doesn't even want to preach. He actually goes the opposite direction of where God sends him. And God in his grace searches Jonah out and sends him back or to Nineveh. And then Jonah preaches. And what happens? Chapter 3, verses 4 to 10 depict to us that the entire city of Nineveh repents. The king repents. They don't even know that God is going to turn from his wrath and his judgment upon them. They don't care. They repent. They believe the message. Not because of the messenger. 
Do you think that Jonah was any more righteous than Noah? No, it's, it's about the message, not the messenger. Preach the word. Stay in the word. Be ready. This too is a command. There's a series of commands that he gives here. There's five of them. Be ready, reprove, rebuke, exhort. This is what you must do. Whether you feel like it or not, Timothy. Jason, whether you feel like it or not. When I give you an opportunity to share the gospel, step into it. He's saying the same thing to each of you. Just because you're not up here preaching Sunday after Sunday doesn't mean that the Lord hasn't placed you in your particular spot for His purpose. And that is to be a proclaimer of His truth. Reprove. This is to to show strong disapproval with how someone is living. But not just speaking to their actions so that all they do is change their actions, but speaking to their minds. And letting them know that they're not thinking correctly. The only way you can do that is allow the word of God to transform someone's mind. And the word of God is what does that. We can't do that to one another. We call that brainwashing. I know it happened to like Patty Hearst and other ones like that. But that's not what God's plan and agenda is for godliness. His plan for us is that we would be saturated with the word of God. And that as the word of God washes over us, it changes us. And as it changes us, then he uses us to be tools, his tools, in the lives of others. That is what Paul is talking about. Reproving, rebuking. This is dealing more with the heart. It's to warn somebody to prevent them from continuing on the road that they are walking. That will lead to your destruction. You, you, you then, you rebuke them as to... Put up a big sign. Stop what you are doing. This will not end well. Stop now. Stop now. Stop now. That is the idea behind rebuking. And then the last is encouragement, exhorting, coming alongside others and spurring them on. This too is, is, is part of the, the job title responsibility, so to speak, of a pastor, but it doesn't stop with us. We see this throughout Scripture. This is our relationship with one another as believers, that we should be spurring each other on towards godliness, towards more and more godliness, helping each other. And you do all of this with great patience and instruction. Patience here is to abide under, meaning to to show endurance and perseverance. What's implied and understood is that this is a difficult thing that is going on but you keep on keeping on timothy i recognize that you are going to come under more and more hard situations difficulties but timothy recognize that you did not get to the point where you are in your spiritual life in one day be gracious to others be patient to them recognizing that it's taken all this time for God to work in your life, give them some time and allow God to work in their life. And yet as I look at all of this, what pastor, uh, what any of us are able to do such a thing without the Lord's enabling? Only through his enabling and his enabling alone can we accomplish such a task. It's no wonder that that Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, 
and be patient with all men. Again, that's not to pastors, that's to all of us. This is how we are all to live. So as Paul gives Timothy this, his final breath, and, and as he explains this, the basics of preaching, we've seen first the who, that Timothy is to be preaching for the Lord, and really solely for the Lord. The what that, that is involved in the, the basics of preaching is the Word of God. And then we see the why. Why preach the Word? Because the Word is truth and what people need is the truth. The problem is people don't want the truth. And that becomes more and more apparent as we get closer and closer to the time when the Lord Jesus will come back. Look at what he says in verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Again, this is speaking of those who are listening to the pastors. It's understood that Paul is telling Timothy, hey, recognize that as you continue to preach only the word, people are not always going to love you. Some people, they're not going to want to endure sound doctrine. Do you remember what sound doctrine means? It means healthy. Sound is also the word, the medical word for health. When somebody is healthy. So what is understood by sound doctrine is that teaching from the Word of God that is helpful spiritually, that gives spiritual life and vitality to those who sit under it. But these don't want any of that. But what do they want? Wanting to have their ears tickled. That literally means that their ears are, are itching. They want more and they want more and they can't, that no matter how much they scratch it, they want to hear more and more and more. And, and why do they want to hear more? Because it's all about their own desires. They will accumulate for themselves. That means to stack on top of one another. They want more and more of these teachers who do what? Who teach in accordance to their own desires. So what they're actually getting is what they want. Not what they need and not what God says that they need. And when you get in a church like that, and then you try to proclaim the truth, do you know what this church does? This church votes you out. This church says, no, no, no. We, we want what that guy over there is giving. And that's where you end up getting a church, like, like I've visited in the past, where, where literally the pastor whips out the newspaper from that particular week and is going through some of the, the latest issues that have been happen, happening. And so Paul is, is giving Timothy this warning. No, you keep preaching, but recognize that as you do this, that some people, that they will not want to hear the truth. And notice what they will do. They will turn their ears away from the truth. They will make the decision that they know what truth is, but they don't want it. And we have seen this throughout history, have we not? That God gives truth, someone comes along and, and distorts that truth and they say, oh yeah, that's much better than whatever God's promising. We see it in the garden with Adam and Eve. What did Satan do? Did God really say? He questions the validity and the truth of God's word. In essence, he's saying, is God really true? No, he's been lying to you. And let me tell you, if you just eat from that tree there, then you'll find out how much he's been withholding from you. And then you'll know what real life is. And what do they do? They buy it. 
And do you know what happens today? Many, many are doing the same thing. And pastors who, who are saying that they're all about the word, they're not all about the word. They're all about just feeding those that are coming. And it just turns into this great big cycle where all of a sudden the truth is totally abandoned. And instead, Paul is letting Timothy know, no, do not give in to that. Because why? They're walking away from the truth. I think one of the best depictions of, of what this represents is seen in the last verse of the book of Judges. Judges chapter 21, verse 25, it says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. I believe that's the world that we live in. Oh, oh we, we have a president, but everybody just basically, it's becoming more and more the norm. Hey, just do whatever you want to do. Whatever's right for you, is that's good. Doesn't matter what it does to anybody else or anything, as long as you feel right about what you're doing. That, that is Judges. That's the last verse of the book of Judges. I believe we see this in the parable of the soil. As the majority of people that are represented in the different soils are those that don't have fertile ground. They, they don't grow. Why? Because they're not ready to really take the truth of the gospel. And so they don't respond. So that is the why. Why do we need preachers that stay in the word of God? Because the truth is only in the word of God. And when preachers deviate from God's word, it is no longer true. Truth is abandoned for the lie of Satan. And finally, how? How does a preacher do this? It's through his life. By being consistent, by living a life that he recognizes as costly and completing the task. That, that is what Paul says as he says this to Timothy. But you, it's emphatic. You're the opposite, buddy. Those that are wanting to have their ears tickled. All of these false teachers in the way that they've been teaching. No, no, no. You do it the complete opposite. Whichever direction they go, you go the opposite direction. And you stay true to sound doctrine. And on top of all of that, but you be sober in all things. Sober here is the ability to remain steady and constant when things get crazy. Timothy, stay constant. Be consistent in what you are doing. Finish the task that you have begun. Take this baton from me and don't just run for the next week. Run for the rest of your life so that you may ultimately end up where I am now and give your life for the gospel. And again, he goes back to this idea of enduring hardship. Why? Because life is hard. But with Jesus, life is bearable. And with Jesus... He can take the hardships and the difficulties and he can even turn them into growth points for us. Opportunities for us to become more like him. Even through the difficulties, even through the hard times. And so he's letting Timothy know, hey, it's not going to get any easier. But that's okay because God's grace is sufficient. So stay in the word, keep preaching the word. And finally, fulfill your ministry. Ministry is the word we get deacon from. It's the word for service. Fulfill the service that the Lord has given you. But fulfill is this word. It means to carry out completely. 
to leave nothing undone. That all that God has given you to accomplish, Timothy, you do it. And you complete that task up into your last dying breath. And that is what Paul is saying. Oh, what a challenge for Timothy. And yet, Paul has modeled this for Timothy. And time and time and time again, Timothy has been able to see in Paul's life God's grace evident and working over and over and over again. And even in the most trying circumstances, Paul could say, it's not about me, it's about him. For me to live is Christ and to die is gay man. If I die, that's okay. That's actually better. But I know that he wants me to keep on living because for me to live is all about him. So I'm going to keep telling people about Jesus even when I'm in this hole of a cell. So what should I say to myself each day as I minister for Christ's church? Today, Lord, I need to be steady. I need to be constant. I need to endure hardship, and I need to do the work of an evangelist. And the only way I can do that is, Lord, help me. Do what you want me to do. Let me close with this uh, illustration from H.B. Charles that probably heard three or four times now and thought, okay, this is a good way for us to end our time even thinking about us as dads. What kind of dad are you going to be? Are you going to be a dad who points your kids to the word of God and says, you know what? That is all that I need. Listen to this. A preacher was packing to go to preach and his son, his little son, was sitting on the bed with him and he said, I think I am about done, son. And, and his son said, dad, you you got a little bit of space left here in your suitcase. What you going to do with that little bit of space? And the old man smiled. And he said, son, with that space left in this suitcase, I, I still got enough room to take with me bread when I'm hungry, fire to keep me warm, a hammer to build with, light for the dark places, milk to nourish me, a map to guide me, seed to plant for harvest, and a sword to fight with. And the little boy obviously asked, but, but Daddy, how are you going to fit all of that in that little space? Well, I put my Bible there, son, and in God's Word, I have everything I need. Is that what you believe? And if that is what you believe, is that how you live? And if that's how you live, is that how you teach your family? Is that how you teach those around you? Let me pray for us as Pastor Shane and the worship team come up. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. To think of living this life without your word is, is painful, Lord. I know the more that I dig into your word, the more I recognize how much I truly do not understand about your greatness, about your plan of redemption, even about what is going to happen in the future, Lord Jesus. Forgive me for, for not even completely understanding how you will be the judge of all. And you are my Savior. You are my King. You are my God. May we praise you all the days of our lives. May we live for you and may your word be everything to us. May it be all that we need. May it be our bread so that when we're hungry, we know that it's there. May, may it be a fire to us to keep us warm. May it be the map to guide us wherever you would take us. 
And may it be our sword, Lord, to protect us from the enemy and his lies and deceit. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.